Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Happy Sunday morning. I'm here at the Bentley Heritage Distillery, Johnny Jeffrey, the master distiller. And he will tell us a bit about his background and also walk us through this lovely lineup in front of us. So please tell us how your career began. Yeah. Just a bit about you. Yeah, so welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Um, I'm a food chemist, so my, my background is in chemistry labs, um, working on, you know, like developing food products. And, um, and in that context, my focus was on fermentation and distillation. I worked with breweries and wineries in Michigan at the time, and, and my professor had a desire to kind of help boost the economy in Michigan using value-added kind of projects for um, agricultural producers. And so we, we built distilleries and, and winery facilities in, in Michigan to kind of give the farmers something else to focus on and, and draw tourism to their, uh, to their operations. Um, and in the process of doing that, serendipitously, um, that was at a time when craft distilling was really taking off. So I had the opportunity to meet a lot of people who were, who were trying to start up distilleries, help them develop products, um, work with them in designing their facilities. And uh, around 2013, late 2013, I had just finished building and commissioning a distillery in Madison, Wisconsin, training a staff there. And I got a call from a headhunter looking for a consultant to help on a little project in Nevada. <laughs> um, I ended up consulting remotely, traveling in into uh, into Minden for two and a half years, including um, running and helping to run a small R and D distillery that we built while this was being engineered and built um, to to work out mash bills and and work with the grains. You know, we're a state here, so we're growing corn, rye, wheat, oats in. Um, in the high desert, at, you know, we're at 4,800 feet, and that's not the normal place to, to grow grain. So we had to make sure that what we grew was, was going to taste good and was going to yield well. So we built this little distillery for two and a half years. We played with whiskey production and developed gins and fooled around on little stills, and uh, that, was, that was during the process of building this. So that's 2015 to 2018. I moved out here in 2016 because um, that little project, as it was described when I first started, had grown into this you know, beautiful monument. Um, and, and Chris and Camille asked me to come run it. So here I am. I love this word monument that you just used. It's almost mm -hmm. an homage to yeah. the historic and so expansive from the point of view as well of what you're trying to create. You're creating a footprint yeah. of what can be accomplished. It must be so wonderful to be part of something this special. Yeah, it really is, and and it is monumental. You know, we've taken um, with with Chris and Camille's vision, we've taken these historical buildings built in the early twentieth century and given them a new life. You know, we're sitting inside of an old decommissioned mill that is once again kind of using grain to make products for people, beautiful things for people. Um, the butter plant, the the creamery behind us. Um, was you know taken apart, put back together. We're using the the first well ever dug in this area for wow. for our production water, and you know this, this could have been a little craft kind of smaller project that would grow over time, um, but 
it, it became clear that, that what Chris and Camille really wanted was something that would, you know, be kind of their legacy to this area. Chris grew up in the area and, you know, he wanted to leave something for generations. So this, this will, this will be that. Thoughtful. And in the era when words like sustainable just became uh, more of a marketing speak than the truth, yeah. you creating a proof of concept and you scaling it, which is a fascinating aspect. Um, a lot of us gravitate towards small boutique, artisanal, you know, the buzzwords, yeah. and associate quality with that. But that's not really the truth, is it? Not necessarily. There, there are a lot of, you know, smaller producers who don't have the background or, or don't, you know, aren't able to, um, aren't able to take the time to really learn, you know, the art, the artistry and the, the mastery of things of, you know, making things like this. And so you'll get, you'll get people talking about that, you know, smaller means better, but it doesn't necessarily if, if they don't have the background or if they don't have the capacity to, you know, to dictate what their raw materials are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, they're just buying from whichever supplier they can find. We're growing all of our raw materials. And, you know, one of the biggest things that drew me to the project was as we were talking about sustainable and reuse and repurposing, mm-hmm. you know, we'd get into talking about energy recovery and water consumption because we are in the desert and, you know, the byproducts that come off of distilling. And in every case, we always had the, you know, we always had the kind of um, the, the impetus and the, the permission really to find the ways to be most efficient and conservative in our use of materials. So we reuse energy wherever we can. Uh, we run one of the largest, if not the largest, composting operations in the state. So all of our spent grain goes out to compost, and that goes back on the land to improve the soil that we're growing the grain on. Um, and so, you know, everywhere we're able, we're we're being good stewards of the land and and building something that you know that won't deplete the environment. It's such an impressive trifecta. You have the historical background, the reverence. You have the artisanal aspect of it, uh, and the know-how and you also have the funding. Yeah. You have the capacity to create, you know, to actually put your vision into fruition and create the scale that yeah. makes sense in your context. Yeah. So that's quite a unique confluence, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is. The you know, um, Chris and Camille were never shy about saying that, you know, they wanted to use the resources that they dedicated to this project to do everything, you know, in the most beautiful and sustainable way and and you know that began with the initial kind of concept designs for these buildings where where we talked about um, anything from you know the the sort of cathedral element of the creamery as you walk in the way it kind of you know there's some Frank Lloyd Wright elements of kind of contracting and expanding there um, to to give you the experience of walking into the building to buying the best equipment um, to investing in you know sustainable operations and and you know we we for example um, you know the ranch and the ranch and, and heritage the distillery work hand in hand obviously because mm-hmm. they're they're growing our raw materials but from the beginning um, you know we would we would throw these ideas out about what we could be growing or what we should be growing and the easiest thing in the world would be to go source you know modified yellow dent corn because it'll grow anywhere and it's practically invincible mm-hmm. um, but. You know, when we talked about quality and, and heritage and history, um, you know, we, we, we landed on a, a heritage variety of corn that, that hasn't been grown in this region and is really rarely grown commercially because, one, it makes beautiful whiskey, and two, um, you know, corn evolved in the desert 
And so there's this element of kind of returning a, a heritage crop and a traditional crop back to the environment in which it evolved rather than relying on the, you know, sort of modified, you know, scientifically manipulated crops that are designed to produce cattle feed, not really to produce, you know, human food or, or good flavors or, or be kind to the soil that, that it's growing in. Um, those, are, those are crops that have been modified for very specific things and they deplete the soil. Um, and, you know, we're, we're composting and, and trying to improve the soil. So that made a lot of sense for us as well. Every, every detail. There are very few things that someone hasn't, you know, kind of picked at to see if there wasn't a better way for us to do it. Whether it's myself or Chris and Camille or any of our team, you know, we're constantly trying to implement, you know, continuous improvement concepts around like, is there anything, is there a, is there a, you know, a single use material that we can stop using today and, and go shopping for alternatives to it? What an extraordinary level of dedication. That's definitely uncommon. You know, walking the facility, it is a bit of a religious experience. Not an imposing sense, but there's a sense of grandeur. Yeah. And yet the human pieces of it show up right away. Yeah. Um, the fact that you care so deeply about what goes in your bottle eventually, where it's sourced from. When you say flask <laughs> to, yeah. um, excuse me, grain to flask, you really mean it in yeah. every possible sense and I am very gratified that you don't rest on your laurels even though you know obviously your spirits are exceptional in terms of quality but you keep improving incrementally what composes them yeah and that's something I don't hear often yeah well we're you know we try to encourage everyone on staff to ask the questions you know to try to figure out if there's something better we can do um, you know, we're, we're always doing continuing education and sending people off to, to bring bits and pieces back to us and mm -hmm. trying to train each other as we as we learn things. You know, it's it's not uncommon for us to, even in production, to, to go find a problem that maybe we thought we solved, but it seems like we could improve. And someone from the staff will start downloading, you know, research papers and, and doing the background research and will come back to us and say, you know, here's, here's what I found. Is it worth implementing? Is it not? Is it feasible? Is it not? Wow. Um, we try to empower everybody to participate in that because, you know, you need everyone to feel like they have one, you know, ownership and a hand yeah. in, in kind of improving it. But two, um, you know, using using something like the title master, I think, inclines people to feel like they they've you know they've mastered it completely and they know all the answers. To me, I'm I'm just the person who's had the opportunity to make make the most mistakes in the room, and I know the value of of learning from them and having people kind of, you know, around you who are trying to trying to poke at everything and see if there's some, you know, see if there's more ground we can make up. Again, I love that word empowerment. It's mm -hmm. clearly about teamwork, common mindset, shared values, and that translates in the product. Yeah. Um, we have a great little lineup here that yeah. I can't wait for you to describe and Good. taste with you. Mm -hmm. Good. So we'll start on your right there. Okay. Um, the first thing we'll taste is the uh, the white vodka. So this is from a base of wheat and oat, mm -hmm. a mixed grain mash bill, distilled on that beautiful German hybrid pot still that you saw through the tall copper columns. It's very beautiful. Um, copper is important <laughs> because it, it scrubs spirit. It's a reactive metal, so it kind of mm -hmm. cleans the spirit up. Um, the first thing I, I like to note about it is it's not as neutral as most vodkas you're accustomed to. I was just running through my mind. You literally read my mind. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're picking up character from the grain, right? <laughs> yeah. And and there is uh, there is a nose to it. It's a little sweet. There's some vanilla and almonds there. And as much as you know, 
vodka drinkers don't necessarily sit and sip and do tasting notes. Um, you know, the nice thing about the vodka, especially when you taste it, I think, is that it has a viscosity and a weight that brings a little more to, um, you know, to drinking vodka than, than most do. And, you know, I, I noted that I, it sounds like from your name you have Eastern European heritage. I do, I do. The word vodka existed before modern um, continuous stills existed. Hmm. And continuous column stills are what give us completely neutral spirit. But vodka in Russia and Poland and, and the Ukraine uh, was being made before we could make neutral spirit. It had a lot of character and it tasted like rye and like potatoes and it had grain, grain and, and raw materials character. So this, in some ways, you know, people like to think of a characterful vodka as like this modern expression of craft distilling. It's really much more of a heritage-driven thing, um, you know, the root of the word um, coming from water. these countries where they yeah. couldn't clean it. Yeah, from, yeah, little water. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. It's fascinating. Wow, that texture. Yeah. That's what stands out, the viscosity, the unctuous. Yeah, it's silky, kind of isn't it? It yeah. does. I mean, yeah. honestly, tasting it blind, I would probably be second-guessing whether it's vodka. Yeah. Even though that's the first thought that leaps to mind. But yeah. it's not... You wouldn't be able to pin down necessarily, no. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, everything we're doing is unusual, so why not Why not the vodka, right? And again, it's supposed to be a neutral spirit, a canvas, yeah. a blank slate. Yeah. And this isn't that. This yeah. is an interesting little story. Yeah. It has its own character. Yeah. And, you know, there's something to experience there rather than, you know, something to sort of bring the alcohol to, to the flavors in a Absolutely. glass. It, yeah. To me, this is sipping opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm beyond excited about the next one. <laughs> I got a little preview, so. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of sipping... Obviously, uh, it takes a little while for whiskey to age, um, mm -hmm. and we um, we definitely are on the whiskey side, particularly in this building where we're um, where we're making single malt. Mm -hmm. You know, our our hearts kind of leap to the space side area where uh, the use of used sherry barrels, used bourbon barrels, is the primary way of aging the spirits. Mm -hmm. But it takes much longer, and so one of the things we wanted to do was have a have a way from the beginning to kind of shout out to that, you know, to that tradition. And so we took the same vodka and we rested it in small sherry barrels, just enough time to extract the sherry from the barrel, because um, there's always some sherry left in the wood once they pull the wine out, um, and also to pull some color and some of the flavor of the oak. So this is Spanish oak with Oloroso sherry for um, just right around a month. And... Uh, The thing that I would say about it is that a normal neutral vodka would not hold up to the character that's being drawn from the barrels. The viscosity of the spirit makes it enough of a lingering experience that, you know, you can sit and enjoy kind of the floral, fruity nature of the sherry wine while you taste it. You're such a wordsmith. <laughs> I love the language. <laughs> lingering. That's exactly, again, mm. mind reading. Um, it has a lasting finish. Yeah. Yeah, which of vodka shouldn't, much less a flavored vodka, right? Yes, yeah. that's that's kind of a bit shocking. Yeah, so what's funny is, you know, people see this and, and aren't really sure what to do with it, but, you know, we make old fashions with it. We we treat it like, you know, any brown spirit, and it holds up because of the that kind of density and sweetness of the vodka. Again, a bit of a mind-bender. Yeah. Would not recognize it as such if I wasn't told right. what it was. Right. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. So those are our two vodkas. Mm-hmm. Um, 
those fall under the brand name Source One, mm -hmm. and that's a shout out to that well that I talked about. The, yeah. You know, that, that small silo out behind us mm -hmm. was built from the material that we pulled out of the middle of the silos here. So we okay. built that silo wow. to house well number one, the, the first well dug in the area, <laughs> which is Source One, you know, it's the root of that kind of name for the vodka brand. Very cool. The, the, the gin brand is we call Juniper Grove. Mm -hmm. There are three gins. I only have two to taste today because the release of the third one is a week from Friday. Um, the first one we'll taste, the one on the right, is our American Dry Gin. So five botanicals, fresh citrus, juniper forward, pretty classic, a little more aromatic than, than many London dries. Um, but, you know, citrusy and fruity and summery. Kind of feminine almost. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's bright and, and kind of light. And, mm -hmm. you know, the idea here is to present kind of a classic summery gin with, um, uh, you know, perfect for a gin and tonic kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. He lights on, it, on his feet. Yeah. You described it perfectly. I really have nothing to add. But, you know, in this sunlit, beautiful space, and it just makes me happy. Yeah. Good. <laughs> and still sippable, right? Still kind totally. of creamy and silky and soft on the palate, but bright and, you know, you can kind of sit with it. I'm still getting some of the lemon coming off the back of the palate and, and you know, that citrusy kind of summery sweetness that's so lovely in a London dry. You know, I'm really not a fan of austerity in any realm, but particularly <laughs> in spirits. So. And I understand that there's a place um, for those as well, but um, to me, there has to be a personality, a character, a flavor profile, regardless of how yeah. much you're enamored with it. Yeah. Um, and that certainly testifies to the fact that your spirits have so much persona. Yeah. And they're interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, the, the, the project itself and all of the people involved, we're all pretty strong personalities. So we're all, you know, we're all kind of, playing a part in, in what we want to express in the spirits, you know, from, from you know, the, the interesting drinks program that we have here to, you know, I, I had two of my assistant distillers do the bulk of the work in developing that, and we kind of worked on it together as a part of, you know, training up on how to use the equipment, and that was, you know, sort of like their, you know, their capstone for the startup process was helping to develop that. We have an incredible team here of really just remarkable people. Well... Uh, what they do, I think, is um, create something that's delicious, but also quite elevated. Mm -hmm. um, I taste elegance, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that also um, tells me its own tale. Yeah. It's, it's definitely very thoughtful craftsmanship. Yeah. So the last thing we'll taste is our atrium gin. Um, we call it atrium because um, I talked to you a little bit about our foraging process, going out into the national forest and looking for native varieties. We found... Um, on native Eastern Sierra Angelica and gentian. Uh, that's not what we ended up using, but our, our intent as we build these greenhouses is to get to a point where we're growing those things and starting mm -hmm. to introduce them. So Atrium being a shout out to that greenhouse project. There are 10 botanicals here, and this is much more of a contemporary gym. So it is not going to present as juniper forward. It's going to be more floral and robust. Um, you're going to have a tremendously kind of complex experience on the palate of you know, one of the things I love about tasting gin is that it's very evocative of the process of distilling gin. Mm. When we distill gin, 
we start up the still and we'll get individual botanicals coming off the still at different times. So at the beginning, you'll get a big burst of really intense uh, juniper berries coming off, kind mm -hmm. of a piney characteristic. Mm -hmm. And then behind that will come lavender and behind that more of the citrus character of juniper. And so they come off one at a time. And what I love about you know, the 10 botanicals in this gin is as you taste it, one at a time, they'll kind of come popping up off your palate and you won't necessarily identify each one, but it's a, it's a really complex and kind of fun experience. It has such an intense nose. I can just smell it for half an hour and be perfectly thrilled. Mm. Of all the spirits we're experiencing, this definitely aromatically is yeah. the most intense. Yeah. And that was really the effort was to be, you know, really unusual really botanical forward, but, but complex and still with some delicacy, not heavy handed. No, not at all. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about the sipping aspect of it because we touched upon it. I'm not sure that in the U S there's culturally a lot of context for that. Yeah. When we go to cocktails. We just tend to drink them. Yeah. Um, same with wine actually. Um, yes, some people sip it, but overall a glass of wine, you drink it. Mm -hmm. Um, there's not necessarily um, a lot of cultural practicing of aperitif and digestif either, yeah, which yeah. I've fallen in love with in Europe. Talk to me about that. Like, what is your vision? What would you like to see happen? Yeah, so, you know, clearly, clearly when we release the whiskeys, we're, we're going to be trying to encourage people to sip them neat and enjoy them as they are. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right, gin, you know, gin, even, I mean, not that barrel rested vodka is a thing, but mm -hmm. you know, gin traditionally is just thought of as another thing to, you know, an element in a cocktail and, and it's a magnificent element in a cocktail. But, you know, with the, with the kind of sweet, soft kind of viscous nature of the spirit we're using, we love to, we love to talk to people about that while there's sipping culture in, in many brown spirits, we think mm -hmm. there's room for sipping culture in, in gin, you know, mm -hmm. like with something as complex as this with a little bit of ice, just to kind of sip on it and see if you can identify all the 10 botanicals and mm -hmm. enjoy it as it is, you know, a little pour like that is a really nice, you know, gin, gin fits as nicely next to a fireplace as, as whiskey does if you're, if you're really experiencing it and thinking about it and trying to, trying to, you know, dig out the intent of the producer. You know, when you when you sip whiskey, you're thinking about the barrel that was used and the time that was put in. Mm -hmm. When you're when you're sipping gin, you're thinking about you know why these botanicals and and what experiences each botanical kind of bringing to the table. And this one in particular, the atrium, um, I think is a lovely sipping gin. Very much so. So, say a consumer that's relatively unfamiliar with gin, or perhaps had that bad experience in college, mm -hmm. um, and they're somewhat curious about the category and not sure where to start. Yeah. What advice would you give them? Well, um, you know, clearly I'm going to be talking about our spirits. Uh, m most of the time, what what people have had for a bad experience with gin is one of those really juniper forward kind of Christmas tree mm -hmm. pine bombs. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that is not what we're producing in either of these. You know, they're complex and they're soft and they're approachable. And, and I don't think they bring any of what those um, those kind of classic gins bring. We're, we're expressing something different. And, and when you taste our gins, you know, you're tasting our land, you're tasting our, the work of our ranchers and, and what we do on the farm and, you know, what, you know, the, the tremendous amount of time and attention and, and, you know, all of the care that's taken in every step. And, and that's very different from what comes off of, you know, massive production scale distilleries where they're cranking out $10 
you know, $10, 1.75 liter bottles that, that go to the party. You know, we, we want people, we're a, you know, we're an ultra premium product. We want people to take their time and treasure it and sip it and experience it, not just, not just drink it. I love your comments on the origin of it. Of course, terroir concept is pretty dominant in the wine world. Yeah. Thanks to some of your community that made yeah. sure it's stuck. Yeah. But it's really true in the spirits world as well, if done properly. Absolutely. There's the origin, there's the human terroir, which is the intentionality yeah. of producing something that embraces everything, the integrity of the product that actually started in the ground yeah. and then handling it properly. And um, the distillation process, there's both art and science involved. But the artistic element is your vision, is your intent, yeah. is what you impart on it. Well, one of the things I love to talk about in terms of terroir is, um, you know, we use uh, what's called an earth tones bourbon, or an earth tones corn for our bourbon. Mm -hmm. And earth tones, you know, is generally like the display ears that you see in like Thanksgiving displays with the many colored um, grains on the ear of the corn. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the, the, the colors that we have in our earth tones are purple, green, blue, um, yellow, and red. And just depending on where we're at on a pivot, right, we do pivot farming here because mm -hmm. we have to irrigate, um, whether it's a little higher or a little lower, if it holds a little more water, or if it's microclimate cooler, we'll get different color combinations. So where it's lower and a little more moist, you know, we, we kind of skew toward purple and blue. Where it's drier and a little warmer at the top of the pivot, we skew towards green and, green and red. And so, like, just that, you know, those colors are an indication of, of macronutrients and micronutrients that are different, and, you know, and they're developing in different combination because of the conditions that the corn is growing in. And that's just one tiny piece of the many, many pieces that we're, you know, gathering information on and monitoring and, and using to optimize. So, you know, we, we really, we have a lot of attention to detail, and we really are trying to, um, trying to elevate some of these products and do something beautiful and new and interesting. Clearly the continuous evolutions part of your business plan at Bentley Heritage, um, what does the future look like in addition to that that clears a part of the culture and will always take place? What does the future for Bentley Heritage look like? Well there are, you know, there are sort of the obvious ways to answer that would be in kind of the broader kind of projects that we have coming. So we have additional equipment we'll be putting in. Mm -hmm. um, Four years from now or so, we'll start releasing whiskeys, and and that'll be you know bourbon, rye whiskey, single malt, um, and and you know single barrels and that kind of thing. So those are those are kind of the um, the the straightforward things about it. But the the more kind of ethereal, what is the future of, of Bentley Heritage? I mean, the, ideally, um, in a couple of years, when when we're really out of kind of the startup phase of getting all of the this you know huge plant kind of running mm -hmm. everyone will have their hands in experimental releases and and you know we'll be taking people out to do more foraging and and do small releases of you know we we did a couple of distillates from things like desert peach and bitterbrush that grow in this area and wow. those are just you know little blossoms that we went and hand collected and did small batches of so you know, a couple of years from now, we'll just kind of have this continuous stream of creative releases coming from the staff, um, as well as, you know, just kind of broadening our ability to, to use and experiment with the equipment and tap all the, you know, creative resources that we have in this super cool team. I love it. What an exciting um, proposition for the consumer to participate as well, to come and taste all this, yeah. like you said, very limited, very experimental batches. So last but not least, 
What's your favorite cocktail? <laughs> um, Negroni, ah. hands down. Um, <laughs> my uh, my mother's family is all Italian, and I grew up. Uh, I grew up. My great grandmother, my grandmother, and my mom sitting on the back porch drinking Campari and soda and listening to opera and crying and my gossiping. God. And and so you know anything anything Amaro based for me just goes straight straight to the depths of my heart. And, and Negroni. With the you know with that nice balance of you know the expressiveness of the gin with the bitterness and like that's that's my drink that's wow. my go-to. What a beautiful image to end this on. <laughs> I'm actually visualizing it right now. Thank yeah. you so much. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.